The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about this, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Let's just pray before we get into God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you speak to us through your Word. We thank you that it is alive and it transforms us. God, we pray that this morning we would be open to your Word, that you would uh, be at work in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, I'm continuing on this series, uh, the story, as we look through the story of the Bible. It's been a little while since we last looked at uh, King Saul, which was probably a number of months ago now. Um, And uh, Pastor Pete has been away on some well-deserved leave this week, so you guys are stuck with me this morning. So... It's great that the sun is, is out. I'm really enjoying this weather. I'm really enjoying that the sun is out this morning. And it's really making me look forward to summer. I love summer. It is my favorite time of year. And I love, one of my favorite memories of summer is doing summer missions and doing Blue Moose coffee shops. And a number of years ago, I was doing a, a Blue Moose coffee shop uh, in Mansfield. 
and, you know, there's just the smell of hot jam donuts would fill the air. And, but it was such a hot summer. It was so hot. There would, you would be sweating throughout the night as you tried to sleep in unair-conditioned halls. And um, you were constantly looking for relief of the heat. One night, I was running the cafe and, and that we set up and... To my shock, I discovered that the freezer door was left open just a little bit. Don't you just hate that? When you come home, you realise you've left the freezer open. So we go and inspect the damage. And all of the ice cream had melted. All of it had melted. My leader said, you need to go throw out this ice cream, just put it in the bin and then go down to the shops and get more. I was like, this is a lot of ice cream. What a waste. It's still cold. Let's just stick it back in the freezer. We'll refreeze it. It'll be fine. So a short while later, I get called into the cafe. And in the hustle and bustle of running the cafe, the ice cream tubs got tipped in the freezer. And there was gooey liquid running out of the freezer door, pooling onto the floor. Made a huge mess. I was stubborn. I was prideful. I thought I knew better. Let's just refreeze it. But it ended up in a massive mess. And I had to apologise for that. Sorry, I didn't listen to you. I didn't do what you'd asked me to do. And then I had to clean it up. Pride is, gets messy. And pride is a, a universal struggle that we have. And I think it's at the very core of what sin is. And humility for us, it doesn't come naturally. But humility is, is something that we all regard as something really important, don't we? We really value humility. And so what we read in the story of, of this, particularly the second half of 1 Samuel, where the stories of David, but also of Saul, and it's written in a way where you can follow the narrative unfold and the outworkings of both pride and humility. And so we see the pride of Saul and his fall from grace and fall from power. And then at the same time, we see the humility of David and his rise to the throne and rise to power. Tim Mackey suggests that the contrast between the characters of Saul and the character of David is the, one of the key points that the author of Samuel is trying to convey. There is such a contrasting difference between Saul and David. And God has rejected Saul as king. But he keeps striving for validation from others. He's jealous and all he wants is power. His reputation is everything to him. And God is just an afterthought. And obedience to God is just negotiable, really. You know, and, and there really is nothing has changed since, uh, since Samuel confronting him, um, uh, confronting Saul. And so we see... Uh, that David has, has risen, in, in Samuel 18, David has risen to being one of Saul's generals. And the army is returning from fighting. And there is this song that the people are singing in, in 1 Samuel 18, 7. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens 
of thousands. And then, and then we see Saul's response in verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more could he get but the kingdom? Saul was so jealous of David's success and that people would see him as more successful in battle than Saul. Saul had not changed. He was still overly concerned about what other people had thought. God's opinion didn't matter. It was the opinion of the people that he cared about. He was still prideful, arrogant, and was not obedient to God's instructions. And the very reason that the kingship was taken from Saul just remained. And so at the same time we follow the story of David while he was young, before he takes the throne, in contrast to Saul, we see David's humility. And as I was reading through 1 Samuel, there were three things that really demonstrated David's humility, that really stood out to me. There were three things. The first, and then we're going to work through them. The first is that David served. The second is that David listened. And the third is that David trusted in God. And these are in complete contrast to Saul in his pride. John read out to us David's anointing. And and David has been set apart to be king. But Saul is still on the throne. You know, and, and later on in chapter 16, Saul is under this demonic oppression. And so he wants someone to come and play the lyre harp to him, to soothe him. And David is well known for playing his skills with the lyre harp. And so he's invited into the king's service to play for him whenever Saul needed relief from the evil spirit that's troubling him. And David, while he is the anointed king, comes in and serves Saul with music. Soon after, in chapter 17, the Philistines gather their armies. They're ready to invade. And they wait on the top of a hill. And the Israelite army come out and meet them. And they're waiting on the adjacent hill with a valley in between them. You might know this story, the story of David and Goliath. And David, on the instructions of his father, is bringing food and supplies to his brothers on the front lines, another demonstration of his service. And he hears about Goliath challenging the Israelites to a 1v1 fight, winner takes all, but no one is willing to fight the giant Goliath. Israel, the Israelites are terrified. So David sees this and he goes to Saul, King Saul, and says uh, in 1 Samuel 17, 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on his account of this Philistine. Your servant, meaning himself, will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Verse 36, your servant has killed both lion and the bear. 
And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Three times David refers to himself as servant. David has taken the posture of a servant. David is the rightful king, chosen by God. Wouldn't you think he goes, hold on a second, I've been anointed king, why should I serve? I should be being served. Why should I serve when I am the rightful king? But David doesn't do that. But it's this kind of humility that God is looking for. So when David then continues to serve Saul as one of his military generals, Saul sends him on missions, doomed to fail because he, in the hope that David would be killed. But David keeps having success. He keeps, keeps serving Saul. He keeps having success because the Lord was with him. You know, it's easy for us to allow pride to creep in and convince us that serving is beneath us. And we gain a sense of entitlement, don't we? One of my uh, favourite kids' shows at the moment is Bluey. It's very popular amongst young families right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, in being a young dad of, of two, it, we watch a lot of Bluey in our house. And there's this one episode called Library. Uncle Stripe and his daughter Muffin go to Bluey's house to play. Uncle Stripe tells Muffin that she is the most special kid in the world. And Muffin, uh, which you can see on the bike in the picture, the little one, if you're not familiar, uh, she uses it as an excuse to do anything she wants, which means playing Bluey and Bingo's game of library her way, riding around loudly on her bike and borrowing all the books without returning any. It came for them to return their library books. Get, here we go. And Muffin is surrounded by all of them. She's just hoarded them all. And Muffin refuses to return them. She says, I'm keeping them, as she sits surrounded by all the books. Bluey explains, you can't keep all the library books. If you don't return them, then other people can't borrow them. And Muffin replies, everyone else has to return them, but I get to keep them because I'm the most special kid in the world. Frustrated, Bluey and Bingo decide that they can't play library anymore. So when Uncle Stripe steps in, Muffin learns that just because she's special to her mum and dad doesn't mean that she is more special than anyone else. You know, and this, this whole storyline comes about because Uncle Stripe, he justifies why he doesn't slow down and stop for an orange light. Because it was a special case. And, and Muffin asks, am I special? He goes, yeah, you're the most special kid in the world. Because it was a special case. A sense of entitlement makes us the exception to the rule. And its roots are found in pride. You know, are there times where you might justify your decisions as a special case? 
we feel like we're deserving of that promotion or we're deserving of that recognition. Have you seen how much work I've done, how much work I've put into that? I deserve that. Well, maybe we might cross boundaries. We disregard, disregard others' personal space, read people's private messages, or expect an immediate response because it's a special case. We might shift blame to others. When things don't go my way, we refuse to take responsibility for our own actions or mistakes because it was a special case. We expect, you know, our child to be prioritised over others at school or at their sporting clubs because they're a special kid. You know, or sometimes we have unrealistic expectations of perfection for both ourselves and for others, which leads to conflict or disappointment because it's a special case. For followers of Jesus... Serving is never beneath us. Serving others is a key part of expressing our faith. We need to repent of our pride, our sense of entitlement. Lay that down and serve. So the first demonstration of David's humility is through his service. And the second is that he listened to God. There are these moments throughout uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel where David goes and inquires of the Lord. God, should I go do this? What do you think about that? One instance here is in 1 Samuel 23, 2-5. He, David, inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Kelah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keller against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered him, Go down to Keller, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went down into Keller, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keller. Here we see like this instance of, of God is speaking and David is listening. And this is complete contrast to Saul. There's this sense of open communication between God and David. But for Saul, there is no, there's no dialogue you know, there's this one time we see Saul coming to inquire of God, but God refuses to answer. You know, why would God not speak to him? Have you ever felt like God is giving you the silent treatment? Have you ever felt like when you've needed to hear God most, that he just doesn't seem to speak? Like he won't give you an answer? In these moments, I think we need to stop and think back to when was the last time I heard God speak. For Saul, when the last time he uh, heard God speak was in, in chapter 15, 28. So when, when, when Samuel is confronting Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom because of his disobedience. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today 
and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Saul just says, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But he actually just continues to live exactly the same life. Continues to rule, there is no real change. And then, so Samuel has to go anoint David in secret because he fears that Saul's going to kill him. You know, and word gets out that David is going to be the next king. That's no, it's no surprise. But so Saul repeatedly tries to kill David. He goes to great lengths to hunt him down, to try and ensure that his throne isn't taken from him. And so in chapter 22, Saul kills 85 priests of the Lord and he kills everyone in the priest's village because they were sympathetic to David. Because David came to them to inquire of the Lord, to listen to God for him. Saul is even jealous of David's intimacy with God. Then in in chapter 28, I think Saul sinks to one of his lowest points. Saul inquires of God because there's this threat of the Philistine invasion. And he is scared. And he feels like he decides that he needs God now. But God does not answer. Silence. We can pick this story up in 1 Samuel 28 verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came up and set up camp at Shinnom. And while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart, so he inquired of the Lord. But the Lord did not answer him by dreams or by Urim or the prophets. God stayed silent. You ever felt like God won't speak to you? Do you remember what the last thing that God said to you was? Might have been last month, or maybe it was 30 years ago. What was the last thing you heard God say to you? Because the last thing God had said to Saul was, the kingdom is not yours anymore, it's been taken from you. Yet he still holds on to the kingdom. The shame it would bear to abdicate the throne would have been too much. The opinions of others, how he was perceived by everyone else was too important. So my question for us this morning is, could it be that God is silent to us because we have not listened to what God has already said? So Saul in his desperation consults a medium to perform some necromancy, to bring up the spirit of Samuel. And what does the spirit say in 1 Samuel 28, 7? The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. The exact same thing he'd last heard from God all the way back in chapter 15. David inquires of God, not because he just wants to use God for his own means. Saul is just wanting to use God so that he might be seen as successful or favorable in the eyes of the people. He doesn't want to listen to him. He doesn't want to be obedient. David is inquiring of God because he wants to listen. He wants to be obedient to what he says. You know, there was that instance where David attacked that uh, that village to, to attack the Philistines to save Keller um, in chapter 23. David's men don't want to go and do what the Lord said. They were fearful. They were anxious. 
And Saul, in this exact moment, would have tried to save face. But David goes back to God for reassurance. He inquires of God again and does not let the voice of others dictate or sway what God had said. He holds on fast to what God had said. Even when it might go against the grain, even when it might not paint you in the best light to the others, even when it could tarnish our reputation. You know, this is one of the characteristics of David that made him a man over after God, God's own heart. God's opinion of David mattered most, not the opinion of others. So I don't think we should be surprised if God is silent when our motives are to use him for our own means. Use him like a vending machine, like Saul did. That's not relationship, is it? So if God is silent for us this morning, what was the last thing you'd heard him say? And have you done it? What is stopping you from doing it? Is it the fear of how it might look for you? How are the opinions of others? How are you responding when the voices of fear and anxiety are spoken to you? Do you try and save face, try and find a middle ground to try and please everybody? I want to encourage us this morning to trust in the voice of the Lord. Are voices of fear and anxiety preventing you to stepping into God's calling? Or are you the voice of fear and anxiety in, in situations you can't control? Or situations you don't like or you're just frustrated with? David was able to hold fast to what God had said, because not because he had this incredible blind faith, not just a simple trust God. That's not going to help ease your fears. David trusts in the voice of the Lord because he trusts God himself, the person of God. He trusts in God's provision for him. He trusts in God's timing and I think that, that leads us to the third way that we see David's humility. David trusts in God's providence, his provision, his timing. And that will help us ease our fears when we put our trust in the person of God. So for David, that trust looked like when, when God would deliver him the, uh, would deliver Goliath into his hands. David goes into battle time and time again because he trusts that God is with him. He, it is trust in God's power that he can do it and also trust in God's faithfulness that he will do it. But the demonstration of his humble trust that stood out for me in this story was the trust in God's timing. Saul is hunting David for the, the second half of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel. He's hunting him like an animal, like a lion stalking prey. Saul wants David dead. So David is trying to invade all of Saul's trap. He's escaping, being murdered by him multiple times. He runs and hides in the wilderness and in caves and, and towns that are sympathetic to him. And while he's on the run, he has these opportunities to call, kill Saul and then take the throne. 
It would end. He wouldn't have to be on the run anymore. Saul would be dead. But he doesn't. David trusts in God's timing for when he would take the throne. And he spares Saul's life twice. One time when Saul is doing a poop in a cave uh, and David's and his men are hiding deep inside the cave and David sneaks up and cuts off a corner of his robe. That's in 1 Samuel 24. And then another time uh, when Saul is asleep in uh, 1 Samuel 26, David sneaks in and takes Saul's spear, both times showing him that he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. David, in his rise to the throne, refused to kill Saul. Saul was anointed by God. And so he did not want to go against God by killing Saul. And, and Daniel, uh, David explains that in chapter 26. David wasn't going to assume the throne in a way that would dishonor God. He didn't want to take the throne in a sinful way. Because the ends did not justify the means. Despite Saul's evil, David trusted that God will make him king in his timing. Even despite the human evil that he was facing, he trusted that God will oppose the proud and exalt the humble. My wife, Clyde, is currently 32 weeks pregnant. And so we're really excited and we're getting ready to meet uh, a new baby girl. And um, Clyde is very much over being pregnant, though, at the moment. She's ready for this baby to be on the outside, on the outside. But there's nothing that we can do but wait. We can't force it. We have to acknowledge that the timing of this baby will be com- is completely out of our control. Completely. There's nothing that we can do. We just have to wait. I think to humbly trust in God's timing is often to simply wait. But we don't like waiting. It's boring. We get impatient. We like to control things. But I think stilling ourselves to the point where we can wait is critical to trusting in God's timing. You know, David writes in in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. And gave me a firm place to stand. So I want to suggest three ways that we can wait well and trust in God's timing. The first is to lean in to God. See, uh, David didn't wait and do nothing. He cried out to God. He wasn't passive. He leaned in to God. He petitioned God. He poured his heart out to God. So I want to encourage us in our waiting, to keep listening to God. Keep inquiring of Him. He didn't say, David didn't say, until you make me king, I'm doing things my own way and then we can chat. No. He was waiting for God's deliverance, but in the meantime, he was still doing God's will. He was still pursuing Him. Lean into God. That's the first thing. The second thing is the end never justifies the means. 
If you can get what you want through manipulation, through deception, through taking advantage of someone else or through abuse, it's not worth it. Maintain your integrity. As we wait on God, we need to be above reproach. And so when accusations come, they do not stick because your character and your conduct is above reproach. So David has done nothing wrong. 1 Samuel 20, uh, even Jonathan, Saul's son, heir to the throne, if, if that happens, if Saul manages to kill David, acknowledges that David's innocence and knows that David is really the rightful king. David's done nothing wrong. He remains his integrity intact. And as we wait for God, we too need to maintain our integrity, especially in our conduct and in our speech. The third thing is that the grass is greener where you water it. So be a good steward with what God has given you already. I think we can fall into the trap that the grass is greener on the other side. If we simply change this, if my circumstances were that, if my problems would be fixed if this happened, if I moved away, if I was with someone else, if I had a different job, if this person was in this role, if it's a lie of a fantasy we buy into way too easily. Do you think David thought, gee, wouldn't it be easier if I just became king? I wouldn't have to be on the run. I wouldn't have to fear for my life. I wouldn't have to hide in caves that people poo in. Wouldn't it just be easier? He could enjoy the comforts of being king. He could be reunited with his wife. I think David would have thought, yeah, the, the grass would be a whole lot greener if I were king. But no, he chose to serve. He chose to listen and he was obedient to God and he trusted him in the midst of it. The Philistines thought that David and Saul would fight amongst themselves and that would be good for them. But David refused to undermine the Israelite kingdom. He refused to start a civil war. He refused to undermine Saul, even though he was trying to kill him. Because he was invested in the, in the kingdom of Israel. He was watering right where he was. So my encouragement to us this morning is to lean into God. The ends never justifies the means. And the grass is... Not greener on the other side. It, the grass is greener where you water it. So I want to finish with this. David served. David listened. And David trusted in God. And like David, took the posture of a servant. Even though he was anointed the king of Israel, Jesus became a servant, even though he is the king of the universe. And like David listened to God's instructions and was obedient, Jesus listened to the instructions of the Father and was obedient even to his own death. And like David trusted that God would exalt him to the King of Israel, Jesus trusted the Father that he would rise from the grave and be exalted to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. 
and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the true and better David. While David defeated the giant Goliath to save the Israelites from death at the hand of the Philistines, Jesus defeated the giant of the curse of sin, saving all of God's people from death. Jesus is the true and better David. So let's lay down our pride this morning. Let's lay down our stubbornness. Lay down our sense of entitlement. Let's lay down the opinions of those that we hold higher than God himself. Let's lay down our pride this morning, church. Philippians 2, 6, 11 says this, as the band wants to come up. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used with, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we humbly submit to you this morning. We lay down our pride, our stubbornness, our entitlements. We lay them at your feet, God, because you are the true king. And we want to submit to your good and perfect ways. God, Reveal in our hearts what we are holding on to, what we are refusing to submit, where we are prideful. And God, help us to truly repent, to turn from those ways, to turn from those things and turn to you. God, we thank you that you are truly humble and you demonstrated that by sending Jesus to die upon a cross, to die a sinner's death in our place for our sin so that we might be reconciled to you, Father. What a humble servant you are. What a humble servant king. May we too follow you in your humility, whatever the cost. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.